This morning we have the privilege of having Dr. DeCryter again return to his pulpit. Dr. DeCryter is the founding pastor and senior pastor emeritus of Christ Church of Oakbrook. He provided the founding vision and the sustaining leadership Christ Church required to become the church it is today. While now retired, the fingerprints of his character and convictions remain evident throughout the church. He continues to remain active in teaching, mentoring, and advocacy for mission concerns. He has not left the ministry as he has become a senior pastor emeritus. Dr. DeCryter grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. After completing his graduate work at Princeton, he accepted the call of a church in Western Springs, Illinois, where he served as pastor for over 13 years. In 1965, Dr. DeCryter was called to the burgeoning community of Oak Brook, with his wife Gladys, to found a new church with five families. In just a few years, the church grew to fill Butler School Gymnasium. On Easter Sunday, 1970, the new church building at York and 31st Street, seating 1,200 people, was dedicated and filled to capacity. In 1951, Dr. DeCryter began broadcasting weekly to the Chicagoland area through a radio ministry and in 1980 saw the message of the pulpit of Christ Church sent forth through the medium of television, a media ministry we still enjoy today. Over the years, Dr. DeCryter advanced the cause of theological education as a member of the Board of Trustees of Fuller Theological Seminary, and as a founder of the St. Petersburg Theological Seminary in Russia, he is the co-founder and chaplain emeritus of the Executive's Breakfast Club of Oakbrook. He has served on the Board of Trustees of the O'Hare International Airport Interfaith Chapel, the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago, and the Advisory Council of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Professional honors abound, including the 1996 Gutenberg Award, the establishment of the Arthur DeCryter Christ Church of Oak Brook Chair of Preaching at Fuller Theological Seminary. Recognition as the first recipient of the annual Paul Butler Achievement Award for Leadership, and selection as one of the ten outstanding preachers in the Chicago area by the Chicago Tribune in 1981. If you know Dr. Kreider, you know what a profound preacher he is. If you don't know Dr. Kreider, you are going to find out this morning. Join me in giving Dr. Kreider a Christ Church welcome as he returns to the pulpit. Thank you, David. You know about this. Enjoy. Yep. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please, please sit down. David, you forgot one thing. <laughs> I do a great job of washing cars. I feel a bit intimidated hearing all these things. But then I've lived a long time and they sort of accumulate here and there along the way. And I had a, I'm going to take you with me. You do. Made me feel pretty good. I, um, I had a very difficult task deciding what to preach. I haven't been here for two years. It wasn't too well two years ago. 
I'm getting younger now and I feel a little better, so here I am. <laughs> I thought I'd take a, a leaf out of uh, the remarks that were made by Dr. Karl Barth, who was a Swiss theologian, worldwide in influence. And about in, um, oh, about 60, 60, 65 years ago, he was asked here in the University of Chicago Theological Seminary what he thought was the most profound thing about the Christian faith. And he was also asked, how do you make a sermon? And I've had a lot of people ask this of me. And to both of these questions, he answered a very practical, in a very practical way in a simple, understandable way. He said, you make a sermon by having the newspaper in one hand. I probably would have said the iPod or something like that today. And in the other hand, the Bible. And so in my search for a topic today, and with the kind of society we're living in, it seemed to me that I should look at society and look at the Bible from the pulpit this morning. And this is what I intend to do for you, and I hope you will find a a blessing and opportunities as we think together for a few minutes about both the society we live in and, on the other hand, and more importantly, this, the scripture that speaks to this issue. There's a couple of things I just wanted to mention briefly. Um, we have a society of escape. People running away from something, they're, they're struggling to find happiness. One of my professors said, happiness is a state It's not a condition. You don't have a condition of happiness. You have a state. It's something you have, and then it's elusive, and it disappears, and you look for the next thing to give you some happiness and excitement in life. And we Americans like excitement. We like things that are new. And so we hurry from one thing to the other, and life gets busier and busier. And with all of the high tech in our society... We can become busy with hundreds, if not thousands, of people in a week. It's not impossible to talk to people in any country in the world very quickly through your computer. And it's very easy to get disturbed by this quest for something significant in life because we are a me too kind of people. In fact, it's gotten to the point where the individual makes important decisions, has many rights, should not be contradicted. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And anyone who believes in anything very strongly is peculiar. And so we try and we fail, and some people can't find it, millions of them, in fact, turn to drugs, to alcohol. The latest is gambling. Some kind of excitement. 
And we don't ask too much about whether it's right or wrong, but it does give us a little happiness for a time. We're also a society that struggles to know what is right and what is wrong. And in the quest of what is right or wrong, we we don't want to insult anybody, so we're very careful to respect everybody's opinion. And everyone has a chance to decide what is right and wrong. And we may discuss it with each other, and we live in this shrunken globe where we meet many people of many walks of life and many religious beliefs. But we set God off to the side. He mustn't be quoted or talked about as though he has anything final to say, because then we're too proud. We think we know truth. That's not very popular. We must be tentative, as science is tentative and makes mistakes. So they equate religion with a tentative attempt, which can be an error. I saw Harry Potter the other night with my family. It struck me all over again that our society is really concerned about truth and values. Here's a movie about good and evil. And the evil and the good are always in conflict and fighting each other through people. Good people and evil people. I guess you'd have to say, it's not very nice, but the movie is very honest about this. In very graphic style, you see them fighting, and you wonder, who's going to win? Is the bad person going to win, or is a good person going to win? Who knows? One seems to be more powerful at times than another. And when it comes to telling the truth, who knows about that? And somewhere they sneak in the idea when there's a death involved, saying that, well, that that isn't the end of things. I have no idea what they mean by this. It's somebody's opinion but it comes over as though that's the way it is. Nonetheless, crowds standing out in the aisles, turnstiles keeping them in order, waiting to get in, and every one of these movies of Harry Potter is filled over and over and over and over in the multiplex. What do we believe about good and evil? We have a struggling kind of culture around us. We're not too sure about things. And then one day we woke up uh, several months ago and there was a kind of, of moody smog hanging over us. Something had happened to our great American dream. No longer are we secure in our plans for the future. We wonder what this is going to mean to our children and our grandchildren. 
And we wonder how we ever got into this, this economic problem we have where suddenly our homes aren't worth what they were. Maybe we own less of our home than it could possibly bring. In fact, our mortgage may be more than its value. The money we save for retirement has shrunken substantially for all of us who've tried to save for something that isn't yet and may never be. What are we doing with our health problems? How are we going to deal with a world that has so much terror in it? It's a frightening time to live. We're struggling to know our poor Poor children are going to have to suffer in the future like we never knew. And now we're only thinking about it yet while we live off the backwash and the backwaters of our prosperity. Give it another year or two, we're told, by our leaders. And then they don't tell us the truth and they cover things up. They're not transparent. I don't think they know what that word means, to be transparent. Their word isn't good. They admit that they promise things they know they can never deliver. They could just call it politics, as usual. This kind of a world of struggle at many fronts is the world I saw and the challenge of standing here this morning and talking to you about how to be optimistic and how to believe that the future is not going to be a total disaster, but to give you a totally different point of view, not my own, but one that's found in the book. And so we turn this morning to the Scriptures because we need to understand more about who we are in a time like this, a time of great change in our society, an historic moment to be alive. Our fathers never saw a moment like this. They built on the vision of our forebears that founded the country. We're facing another kind of future that we cannot define. It not only mystifies, but it threatens Well, our government said, don't worry, we'll take care of you. Just give us something to stimulate things again. And so we gave them billions of, hundreds of billions of dollars. And now that didn't seem to work, so they're talking about another hundreds of billions of dollars. Somehow or other, they counsel us to believe that if you put enough money into it, things are going to get better, and we won't have any worries anymore. We can go back to the way we were. But the way we were has produced where we are. And it wasn't a matter of money that did it. Nor will it be a matter of money that gets us out of it. The problem was in the hearts and in the character of the people who are citizens of this country. 
And you'll never change it unless you get behind this facade of the external material things, the popular things that bring us happiness and joy and all the things we've been pursuing. We can't live on that. That isn't going to solve it, but we're told it will. Now, I sit in the pew often where you are, and I've been in many different churches. I've heard some good sermons, some mediocre sermons, but none of them had said anything about the influence of society on the Christian's or the Christian's influence on society. Somehow we've been lulled to accept the facts as they're told us by those who have control of the communications. And we're told that certain things aren't talked about. And I've sat in church for months now and years hearing sermons about my soul and heaven, personal development, and I haven't heard a thing about the deterioration into this struggle that it has become. I want to talk to you about that this morning. And in order to do so, I went back to the Scripture and said, Is there any word from the Lord on this? Yes. Happily, there's a word. Happily, by the time we leave the sanctuary this morning, we can leave a happy people singing, Joyful, joyful, we adore you. This is a wonderful gospel we have. Let me tell you about it. Isaiah said, well, maybe you don't know who Isaiah was. He lived 750 years before Jesus. He was one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. He lived in a culture very much like ours. And if you begin at the beginning of the book, it's much like his contemporary Amos, who wrote another book in the Old Testament. The people of Israel, his country people, chosen of the Lord, receiving promises from God, a covenant people, they deteriorated into greed and selfishness and drunkenness, dishonesty, exploitation of anyone they could exploit for their own purposes. And Isaiah becomes very graphic in the description. He could have written this yesterday. And then he changes his writing because God spoke to him. The book begins by telling us about the death of the king, King Uzziah. Good man. It's devastating for Isaiah, young man. He said, what am I going to do? Woe is me, I'm undone. This, this whole thing is unraveling in my life. In my nation it's unraveling. What do I do? And God spoke to him in the temple that day where he went to the church as you've come to this church this morning and he heard God speak. And God spoke to him and said, I want you to represent me 
and the society of which you're a part. Oh, said Isaiah, I can't do that. Uh, he sounded like Moses, didn't he? And some of the other prophets, Jeremiah, was too young, and they all had excuses. Sounds like some of us. What can we do? We're only individuals. We're not that talented. We can't change anything in Washington. We can't get our hands on the communications media. How are we going to do this? Particularly when we have to restrict our judgment on things. Well, God spoke to him. In Isaiah 55, he starts writing a chapter here about what God has said. The next two, three, four chapters are wonderful chapters. I hope you'll read them sometime. Here's what he writes. God said, Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. That is, you're thirsty for something. Waters being the common denominator of that which sustains life. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, how do you buy anything when you haven't got any money? But God says, come. No money? That's fine. You don't need any money. Then he goes on to write, if you have money, why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me, says God. Listen to me, to God. Eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the richness of the fair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. He goes on to say, Seek the Lord while he may be found. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Listen to me. Come to me. Somehow or other, this nation has to learn to listen to God. Well, we start asking questions. We ask something about, is this the right way to live? Have we been doing what we can do? Is there something we've missed? Does the future have to be like the past? Well, we read again in the 56th, the next chapter. Here's what they say. They are shepherds who lack understanding and all of them turn to their own way and each seeks his own gain and says, Come, each one cries, let me get wine. Let me drink my fill of beer and tomorrow will be like today 
even more so. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? Going to be more so tomorrow. And they appeal to the fact that there is a, is a law of continuity, that tomorrow is going to be like today, because that's the way it is. We agree that there's cause and effect, right? God says, no, wrong. Come, buy without money. You don't need money. You can buy what you need that your soul may live and that your nation will be healed if you simply come without money and you don't have to pay any price. But that goes contrary to the way the world sees it. They see it that you reap what you sow. And when Scripture refers to that, it refers to the practices of your use of the material things. That's true. That's science. But when science applies the law of its profession to the spiritual life of human beings in a post-Christ era, it's wrong. Because when Isaiah goes on to the next chapters, he talks about the coming shepherd of the sheep who suffers and dies for the sins of his people. He predicts Jesus Christ to some depth which demands our respect of this prophet of God. For the Bible, you see, is an historic document. It talks about what happened in time. God came to earth. We're not dreaming up this fact that we don't need to pay for anything. He said so. The God who came to walk and live among us. The God who is triune, as he says to, to Isaiah in this chapter, I am the creator. I am the Lord. As he chides Jeremiah and says, where were you when the world was put together? I was there. I did it. I know how it operates. You don't need money for a price. That isn't very logical until you look at the gospel. When God came, he came to die for those who didn't believe in him, care about him, trust him, didn't want anything to do with him. While we were yet sinners, he gave himself. And when he gave himself, he gave us the present and tomorrow. And the past, he blotted out. There's not a continuity with the past when you go to Jesus Christ. It gets stopped. And Paul put it this way, in Christ, all things become new. Or as you heard from Colossians, a quote from your bulletin, Christ is the one who unites and brings, brings sense out of the world. There's a unity of purpose and a unity of function there. God not only speaks, he does. And if you've noticed in the scripture, whenever someone says something about God, God is doing something. 
He isn't just an abstract being watching. Every time God is mentioned, there's a verb along with him. And so what happens is our past, the worst of our past, as God says to him in the next verses, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. So, if we've been living that way, that becomes blotted out in Christ. And the past is stopped in its tracks. All things become new from today. You don't wait till you get to heaven. The kingdom is now. This is the time for Christians to begin to live their Christianity. And it must be so obvious that it's not only what we tell them and explain to them, all they have to do is look at us and they'll see us carrying on our daily tasks. They'll trust us. Our word will be our bond. We don't need to have others write up long documents by the attorneys who know all the details of law. For they can trust a Christian to be like Christ. And that's our mandate. If you're not sure about it, read the parables of Jesus. The kingdom of God is like, he said. Then he gives a story. The kingdom of God is like. And it's always like one who loves the unlovable, people they don't even know. It's always generosity to the sick and the sorrowing and the handicapped and the troubled. It's always grace and mercy and love. Because God is love and with God in you, you have not only the hope of glory, you have a hope to carry that hope to others because of the way you live, the things you say, and how you handle the things in this life. You know, there's a great deal said in the church about personal achievement and blessing. Our prayers are loaded with petitions. Lord, I need this. Lord, I want that. Lord, I want to be this. That's not the way you get there, really. God is waiting for you. He's reaching out to you. You don't have to persuade him to love you. He says, come to me without money, without price. It doesn't cost you anything. The very thing that could cure our national problems is free. All we have to do is accept it. And we Americans have a very difficult time accepting things we haven't earned or understanding that that's the nature of God. The future, then, is all we have. The present is where we are, which is now already past since I said it. 
and the past of things we did and thought. However bad they were, however shaded and dubious, they're gone. Christ took it away. He redeemed us. His Spirit gives us new life. And the Father, the Creator, and the Son, the Redeemer, and the Spirit who indwells us is at work. And I'm sure by now you're saying, yes, but that's a monumental, impossible task. We're not going to reach our society that way. No, we aren't. But God will. He's done it. He did it on the cross. And what came out of his death, the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit's coming on Pentecost, that came into this world. Who of us would have bet on that one? That these men who fled from him and let him die in his loneliness, like Peter, denied him after Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed it, but my heavenly Father. Peter turned right around and said, I never knew this man. And then Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep, Peter. And that fisherman, along with a few other men and women, changed the world. No, they didn't. God did it. But he did it through them. The contention of the Scripture is that if we as individuals will come one at a time and begin to live by what we say consistently and let others know that there's more then this, this kind of a, a stimulant and stimulus of money its never going to do it, my friends. We've got to see changed lives. And before they are going to change, we've got to change. Because I fear, I really fear that most of us have been very comfortable in Christian circles, in the church, and with the hope of eternity. That's wonderful. We haven't been very good at saying, yes, but look, Christ came to make the kingdom now. There's a social, worldwide obligation. And there's a right and there's a wrong and if we don't tell people this, there will only be more of the past. And it won't be better tomorrow. Only God could have thought of this. Whoever thought that a cross would become a universal symbol of love commitment to our Creator and that we would cherish the old rugged cross the way we have. As Paul said, I don't want to know anything else. 
at the cross. And I want to be a good steward, as Jesus taught in the parables, now. It's a monumental task, I admit. I'm not telling you that because I think so. I'm telling you that because he says so. Preaching can be prophetic or it can become a speech of entertainment, cleverness, new ideas. But I felt this morning I had to tell you this. And perhaps I've been amiss in not saying this often enough in all the years we were worshiping together. But we've got to get it right. And we have to face up to the truth. And this morning I hope and pray you will all find the joy. Worry about your children. They'll be just fine in the hands of the Lord. Just as you are today. Ultimately, we have no worries. Life is in the hands of our Creator who loved us so that He gave His only Son. And we're in the hands of a Son who came and volunteered to give His life for us. And the Spirit awaits us to open our hearts to seek and to knock, as you were told a week ago in the sermon off this pulpit. These are the truths, simple and cost a dime. But we're so reluctant to accept all of it. Let us pray together. Oh God, as we contemplate the future, it will be better, much better. But we need to accept and open our hearts in new dimensions. We need to learn, as Christ taught the disciples how to pray, we need to learn how to be witnesses as he sent us out. We've got to learn that the world is the field that needs tilling and tending. Help us, we pray. Keep us humble and keep us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.